Lola called Cedar Falls, Pennsylvania, Wednesday afternoon, September 29, 1971. August 324, Biblical Archaeology, checking up the Babylonian and Biblical accounts of the creation. Now then, Unger says, uh, the similarities have been exaggerated, the conclusions drawn from them are erroneous, apart. Now, the resemblances are mostly formal. That's formal. You could say that um, Geneva College is similar to the Marxist Institute of Leningrad because the students sit on seats and the professor has a desk. But of course, in the inner meaning, I hope there's a vast difference between the two. The similarities are formal. They concern the, the form of the story and not the real meaning of it. Both accounts, he says, know of a time when the earth was waste and void. Void in the Bible, the deep, the home. The Hebrew word translated the deep. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. This was cognate to the Babylonian word Tiamat. These are related Semitic nouns. Tiamat, the chaos monster, and Tahom, the deep, translated the ocean someplace in the Old Testament. And uh, these both go way, way back. Neither of these is derived from the other. One's a Hebrew word, the other a Babylonian, but they're cosmic, like water and water in English and German. Now, also, both these accounts have a similar order of creation. The divine exists before the human. Both of them start with a watery chaos and end with God or the gods at rest. This is also purely formal. And both have a uh, certain uh, predilection or preference for the number seven. Considered the perfect number in the Bible, out of instances of this. Seven tablets on which the story was told in the Babylonian form in seven days of the first week of the day of creation, such so as now, those are resemblances. Then he starts to take up the differences. And first of all, a philosophical difference and then a theological difference. Now, who wants to say something about the, the um, theological difference here? Take that one first. The, the honest hat. Of the idea of God in the biblical account over against the 
confusion and crudity of the ideas of God or the gods, the ideas of divinity in the Babylonian account. Now that's theological. What about the philosophical difference? Thank you. All right. Did you take this question to compare religions last year? Remember one religion that thought of the, 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 the um, karma matter as something sort of sticky that sticks on your soul? It's really the spiritual ideas, but it's kind of matter and it's very thin and it sticks to you. And you have to do good works to get your soul unstuck. Now, <clears throat> that's a little like this. Um, the Babylonian account mixes the two. And this is true of nearly all pagan philosophy. The founder of Greek philosophy was an old fellow named Thales. And he said, all is water. Now, if all is water, God must be water too. If all is water, this has been called technically hydrated monism. <laughs> all is water. You see, this leaves no room for a transcendent God who is distinct from what Thales called the all. And so the Babylonian account similarly confuses divine spirits with cosmic matter and uh, they're mixed up and uh, they're thought of as coexistence and co-eternal God or divine spirit and the cosmic matter, the, let's say, fresh and salt water ocean and so on. <clears throat> so you have a basic dualism here and this is philosophically untenable in the end. It leads to the idea of a finite God. Now, um, how did God create? What uh, method did he use, if we may speak of this, according to the Bible? Mr. Brown? Yeah, and only by his word, see, the Mr. Catechism, what God's work of creation is making all things and nothing by the word of his power, in the space of six days, and all very good. So creation by a word, that is by a fire, or a decision of God's will. Do you think this would um, have God out after a while? What do you think? No, of course it wouldn't. You know, the Mohammedans, um, they uh, object to the idea that uh, it says in Genesis that God rested on the seventh day. They say, uh, uh, this implies God got tired from the creation. Well, of course, you can rest for other reasons than physical exhaustion. But anyway, uh, uh, the Babylonian gods, with a single exception, are pictured as having to use pre-existing materials to work for labor and so forth and put out a lot of effort to accomplish any purpose, whereas in Genesis, God speaks and it is there, it is so. Now, these are the differences. There's a theological difference about the idea of God. There's a philosophical difference about spirit and matter. And then there's this difference about um, whether God or the gods have to work to accomplish what they're doing, or does this simply come from a fire of their will? Now, the um, explanation of the parallel, the Sumerians were totally unrelated. Uh, you'd have to go back to Noah to get the Sumerians related to the ancient Hebrews, like Abraham and Moses. 
but the Babylonians were Semites, and they were related to the Hebrews. Distantly, but nonetheless really. And Abraham, the first uh, of the Hebrews in the Bible, came out of the area of Babylon. Although he was not a Babylonian, he was a Hebrew. But anyway, uh, this explains part of the similarities. Here are two uh, cultures or races that are akin. And that if you could trace them back far enough, you would reach a point where they had been once and they had vanished. And one of these becomes the vehicle of God's plan of redemption, the other does not. But this fact of the kindred culture here and common Semitic background, a common, uh, let's say, ethnic root, if you go back a ways, this uh, is enough to explain part of the similarity. Now, I understand the most striking similarity is the order of events here. First, you have the firmament, or the stratosphere and atmosphere, then the dry land, then the luminaries, sun, moon, and stars appear, and finally man. Now, of course, that isn't that leads out to animals, fishes, and plants, and so forth, but these are in this order. Starting with the firmament, ending with humanity, or man. And this parallel, he says, is, is too close to be accounted uh, for as a mere coincidence or accident. This requires some kind of an explanation of the relation between the two. Now, he gives four attempted explanations and says three of these uh, some plausibility and one of them is no good at all. Four attempted explanations. The first is that Genesis is borrowed from or based upon the Babylonian account of the creation. What is the matter with that kind of a view? No. Well, now the book of Genesis um, is probably, it's older than the clay tablet, but younger than the story in the clay tablet. Also, the story in the book of Genesis may be older than the time of Moses, who wrote it in its present form. So this is not absolutely conclusive. But um, he says um, the simplicity and sublimity of the Genesis account compared with the complexity and crudity of the Babylonian are against this theory. Now, he also raises the question, did Moses, was he aware of, had he read or did he know about the Babylonian account of the creation? I wonder, would you rate um, Moses as an educated man? Uh, would you rate Moses educated? Well, he got a PhD from the University of Egypt. No, uh, he was learned in the learning of the Egyptians. Got it free, too. No tuition to pay. But anyhow, you know, so is God. Finish it, God. Moses undoubtedly studied uh, not only all ordinary Egyptian subjects, mathematics, Egyptian language, and so on, astronomy, but almost certainly at least two other languages, and you could say a priori, it is almost a certainty that Moses knew Aramaic and Akkadian, or Babylonian. And uh, that, um, well, it doesn't say so in the Bible, this is almost a priori a certainty because of the position that he held. Therefore, it is to say the least, highly probable that Moses knew about this story and was familiar with it. Now, that's one thing, to know the story. It's another thing to be dependent on it and what he read himself. This is another matter entirely. And uh, 
It is possible to say that the Moses knew about it, but did not borrow from it. It is also possible to say that Moses knew about it and by divine inspiration was enabled to, let's say, re-edit it and refine it from some of its crudities and save the part out of it that was true and of value and that that's what we have in the book of Genesis. Or, of course, you can say um, God revealed all this to Moses from the set out of the blue sky. Now, but whatever you say, there is no reason to say that Moses was dependent upon the Babylonian account of creation for what he put in the early chapters of Genesis. Now, this is the first supposed, purported, or attempted explanation. The next one is that the Babylonians took from Genesis. You know, I had a student one year that handed in a term paper in Bible 101. This was way back uh, before the sudden we had term papers. And um, it was, well, a freshman girl. It was not the kind of thing that a freshman could have written, I didn't think. It sounded like something written back in Queen Victoria's day or soon after. A very, well, literary high-strung type of language. But uh, I found it in the library in Fulton Alistair's book, a popular writer on the Old Testament. Pages of it, word for word. And uh, this young thing, uh, with an air of the utmost innocence, claimed she had not copied it from Fulton Alistair's book and furthermore didn't even know it was such a book and had never heard of that author. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, Jeff. Next time you have I'll bring Fulton Alistair's book and I'll bring your turn paper and you can look at them yourself. So I brought an extra class, of course, and laid it out and she took a hard look at it and said, well, Dr. Ross, I guess the fine help if I tell you the real truth. And I allowed her to tell this might be constructive. And she said, the fact is, I said, look here. Either you borrowed from Fulton Alistair, or he borrowed from you, or it's a miracle. <laughs> she said, I'll tell you the real truth. I didn't write it at all. My aunt was helping me to go to college, and she wrote it for me, and she must have cribbed it out of Fulton Alistair. <laughs> And this was the utmost air of innocence. Of what do you expect from somebody's aunt who's helping him to go to college? <laughs> and you know, I was, I was so sorry for her. I couldn't bother her out. And I said, well, you realize, according to the rules, I can't accept this. No, I suppose not. <laughs> I said, would you write one of your own? I don't care if it's as good as this. As long as it's your own. She did. And um, the roommate said that it was on the up and up. She came out of that course with dignity and respectable good grace. But anyhow, uh, this is the other possibility, you see, that the Genesis is borrowed from the Babylonian. Well, turn it around. The Babylonian is borrowed from Genesis. This um, is probably impossible because the Babylonian account from the story in it can be proved to have existed several hundred years before the time of Moses when Genesis was written. Now, a third explanation that these two arose spontaneously, this is the miracle theory. Um, what does Andrew say about that one? There are two that have certain obvious resemblances as well as certain important differences, and we say this just happened. They arose spontaneously, just like this. 
school teacher said to a fellow, this same on the subject of dog that you handed in, is word for word identical with the one your brother handed in. Sure, Professor, it's the same dog. Now, <laughs> is this an explanation to say that these two might have originated just by sheer accident independently of each other? Mr. Buddy, could this happen? Well, there's an astronomical probability against it, isn't it? Not, 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 um, and the one in Genesis by the, let's say, work of the Holy Spirit has been preserved pure and free from these uh, polytheistic and fantastic expressions. And the Babylonian, repeated by word of mouth for ages of time without any uh, divine inspiration involved, just uh, all tradition from generation to generation got corrupted into these ideas which also fit in with the general Babylonian worldview. Ever play this game where a party where you stand or sit in a circle and whisper something in somebody's ear and they whisper the next person's ear and you flip around the circle this way? When it gets back, Mr. the way you started from, does it, did you recognize it? Well, just barely sometimes, maybe. You see, uh, just, just maybe 25 people at a party. This gets distorted going around a circle. And uh, tradition without the, the, let's say, overruling and guiding control and influence of the Holy Spirit will inevitably become corrupted away from its God-given truth and purity into ideas that fit in with sinful man's notions. This is certainly the case. Now, they go back to a time, he says, when the race was in unity, before there was all this matching in the Babylonians and Sumerians and Hebrews and so forth. The Babylonian account is the form of this tradition which has been corrupted by the sinful-minded man. The Genesis account is one that has been preserved in its purity. All right? Um, I wonder, would you say, Mr. Johnson, that that is satisfactory? Is that correct? He doesn't absolutely rule out the possibility, you see, of Moses having gone from the Babylonian account under divine inspiration and edited it and sort of process it to bring out what we have in Genesis. This is not what liberals mean when they say the Genesis account is far from the Babylonian. They mean it's simply taken over whole hog by a piece of literary, um, literary larceny. All right, any questions up to this point before we go on from here into deeper work? All right, Genesis, this is chapter 3 now, and questions 34 in the soul. Genesis chapters 1 to 11 deal with a very early period of the world before the time of Abraham. You realize that the, uh, the book of Genesis itself covers more time than all the rest of the Bible put together, and it covers more time than from the time of Jesus Christ to the present day. Um, 
2,200 years on the lowest possible reckoning for Genesis. That's Usher's chronology, which I think is much too, too low. Too low. But taking that just for the moment, 2,200 years for Genesis, from the creation to the death of Joseph, and from the birth of Jesus to the present day, 1971. So Genesis really has a terrific sweep of time. Now, the amazing thing is that a large part of that time, by far the greater part of it, even according to Usher's reckoning, is in the first 11 chapters. After that, it starts out with Abraham, four generations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and, and their contemporaries. And it devotes the 50 chapters in the book, it devotes uh, 39 chapters to four generations, and 11 chapters to the entire creation and history of the world through uh, ages of time, down to the time of, of uh, Abraham. And uh, so there's a tremendous difference here. Now, as Andrew says, Genesis 1 to 11, this is the part that liberals insist today is mythical and cannot be taken as real history. Genesis 1 to 11, a very early period before the time of Abraham. We certainly admit this is terribly ancient. In my opinion, it's much older than, than Usher allowed for. But anyhow, at least that is. And Andrew um, says these chapters in all probability, were written in something like their present form before the time of Moses. Perhaps where you read, these are the generations of, this formula that introduces a new division of the subject, this is the beginning of another clay tablet. This could be, see, this was on a series of geneiform clay tablets, which perhaps Abraham brought in his caravan of luggage from uh, the Chaldees to Hebron and southern Canaan. Uh, it's quite possible and even plausible that um, each tablet started, these are the generations of. These form the natural literary breaks in the book of Genesis. It's a caption or a subtitle. When you see that formula, and this has nothing to do with genetics, these are the generations of. The following is a historical account of. That's what that means. It's, uh, it indicates the a new subject or a new branch of the subject coming up. Now, it is very plausible and held by many scholars that this early part of Genesis existed either exactly as we have it in the Babylonian language, however, or very much like we have it before the time of Moses, and that Moses was guided by God in editing this and incorporating it into the book of Genesis in Hebrew as we have it. Now, there's no reason in the world why you shouldn't believe that. That is not destructive of the inspiration and authority of the Bible. What the liberal critics tell us is just the opposite, that it wasn't written at all so many hundreds of years after the time of Moses. At the Pentateuch, the first five books were written about um, 700, 800 B.C. in there, kind of the kingdom period, and uh, contain, therefore, a large legendary factor of component because the original stories had been told by word of mouth so long they had become somewhat mixed up. Now, that is destructive. That's hard criticism. That's destructive of faith in the Bible as the inspired infallible word of God. But to hold that part of it was written before the time of Moses, and Moses was used by God to translate that into Hebrew and perhaps rewrite some of it a little bit, but that basically it existed in clay tablet form before the time of Moses, 
This is not destructive. You can't prove it, of course, neither can you disprove it. But there's no reason why we shouldn't believe this. And this is held by eminent conservative Bible scholars who believe in the inspiration and infallibility of the Bible for real. All right, now, um, just as with the story of the, the creation, so with the supposed story of the fall of man, there are, and of the flood, there are some striking parallels, but the agreements have been exaggerated. Now, we take up here, we already have the story of the creation. The next is the account of the, the fall of man. And um, this is in Genesis chapter 3. You know, um, one thing that's wrong with uh, all theories of evolution that I know anything about is they have no room for a fall. If it were merely um, adjusting to the fact that apes and monkeys, some of them have tails, and we know, I don't think this would be too <coughs> But there's no room for a fall. Scripture represents mankind as created on a high plane and by disobedience to God against known truth falling from it to state of sin and misery. And evolution represents man as originating at his lowest subhuman and climbing by a steady and long curve to his present state of culture where we stop out of bones on each other. But anyhow, <laughs> uh, these are irreconcilable. There's no room in evolutionary theory for a fall. This is, from a theological standpoint, the chief difficulty. Tennessee in his famous poem, In the Morning, he has a stanza about this. He, I would believe in it, move upward, working out the beast, and let the ape and tiger die. Now, that's what according to Tennessee and the evolutionists. It's the ape and tiger in us that's the trouble. And it's too much ape and tiger in some people. According to the Bible, an ape or a tiger cannot commit sin. They can kill some livestock, but they can't commit sin. And it is not the ape and tiger in us that's the trouble, it's the human in us that's the trouble. It's fallen humanity in us that's the trouble. Not the ape and tiger, it's the man in us that has fallen away from God. And this is the basic difference, you see. Now then, um, uh, the Babylonian literature does not have a plausible parallel to the story of the fall of man. And Unger brings out that this is exactly what you'd expect that they wouldn't have a plausible parallel. This story, is it a compliment to the human race to tell about Adam and Eve falling to sin? Does this reflect great credit on our Mark Twain, you know, he visited the Near East and wrote this book, Innocence Abroad. Mark Twain, his humor is very dated today, but then sort of corny, but he says he was shown the tomb of Adam. And he said, I took out my handkerchief and wept bitter tears over the demise of my original ancestor. <laughs> Nobody knows anything about the tomb of Adam, and that was, that was, that is humor in Mark Twain's day. You know, author of Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, I wrote a book on Christian science. Anyhow, this account is, you see, it's, it's in the Bible because it's true. But it certainly doesn't slaughter the human race. We are the descendants of people created in moral uprightness to do it by sinning against God. This is a reflection on our ancestors, and that's for sure. 
And since we ourselves do the same kind of things, it's a reflection on us too. Now, the Babylonians um, evidently had no such idea, and it didn't please them to think of mankind as sunk in sin. This isn't a nice thought. And so they got it fixed up, so don't blame it on us humans. It isn't our fault. Let's fix it up, blame it on the God. And people have been doing some of this ever since. You know, Adam tried to. <coughs> God said to Adam, Have you eaten the fruit of the tree, of which I command you not to eat it? This woman, that you gave me to be with me, she told me this idea and persuaded me to do it. He blames it on Eve, and he shaves that as close as he dares and comes as near as he dares to bring it on to this woman that you gave me to be with me. She made me do it. However, Adam didn't get away with that. He tried to blame it on some other woman and, and, and to blame it on God. <coughs> All right, now, the location of the Garden of Eden. I wonder, do you think it will ever be found? The Bible gives some geographical notes about it. It mentions four rivers. Tigris, <coughs> or Hedico, and the Euphrates, these are known to death. Both of them tremendous degrees. They join the one before they get clear out into the Persian Gulf. And two others, the Pashon and Gihon, which are not known today. And uh, the experts believe these were probably uh, ancient riverbeds, which later were uh, changed into canals. And uh, maybe were known at the time when Moses wrote Genesis, but are not known anymore today. Uh, also, it is highly probable that the flood so changed the topography of the world, and uh, all things, even if you believe in a local flood, it certainly changed the topography of that part of the world, so that the geographical features would be, except for the biggest rivers, would all be all but obliterated. Uh, there's general agreement, however, that it was in the lower part of Mesopotamia. This is proved by the mention of the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. The Garden of Eden cannot have been in Africa. It, it certainly cannot have been in China, as some Chinese Christians have deemed up. Impossible. And was in all probability located not very far from the Persian Gulf in lower Mesopotamia, the cradle of the human race in spite of what uh, is being claimed today about the Olduvai Gorge in Tanzania. Now, the myth of the Dapa. This is a myth, all right, not a history. Some people have tried to hold that the story or myth of the Dapa is a real parallel to the story of the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. We have four ancient copies of this story. Three of them in um, from Ashurbanipal's library, and one of them was found in Egypt. So there's four copies of this which uh, differ slightly. Adapa. Now, um, Adapa was a man to whom uh, one of the gods, Ea, had uh, given wisdom but not eternal life. He was fishing on the Persian Gulf. The south wind upset his boat. This made him mad. He broke the wing of the south wind. How do you break the wing of the wind? See, that much, this is a myth right there. That kind of a statement. He broke the wind of the, the wing of the south wind. So the wind could no longer blow nice breezes 
and lower Mesopotamia could no longer be air conditioned. This is how they explained the heat and the humidity in the lower Mesopotamia. And uh, Adapa, after this, was called to answer before Anu, a higher god in heaven, and Ea, uh, his creator, had uh, instructed him to dress in mourning and not to eat the food and drink of the water, drink the water of death, or eat the food which would be offered to him. He obeyed these instructions, and uh, he got a blessing instead of a punishment, was set back to earth, however, and did not get eternal life, as he would have if he had eaten, according to the myth, and drunk that food and that water. So he forfeited the chance of eternal life and went back to earth to be an ordinary mortal. And uh, then the fourth... Uh, tablet or fragment of these, adds the information that the Dapa was a representative of mankind, and that his action here, his refusal to eat the food and drink the water in, in heaven, not only lost him eternal life, but cost mankind a high price in disease and mortality or death. Now, do you see any parallel to the minister's story there? It's a striking resemblance, you see, and yet it's a contrast. Adam and Eve ate the fruit which God had forbidden and thereupon were expelled from the Garden of Eden and forfeited the right to eat the tree of life, the fruit of the tree of life, which drops out of the world's history until the end of the book of Revelation where you see it again, the sin problem having been solved and, and disposed of by God's plan of redemption. So Adam and Eve ate the fruit which they had been commanded not to eat probably wasn't an apple either and anyhow this brought to, and Adam certainly acted in a representative capacity it isn't just Mr. Adam but it's Adam the first man and representative of his later descendants this brought to sin and mortality and suffering and death into the human race and the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die now Adapa on the other hand did not eat, as Ea had uh, instructed him, he did not eat. He lost the chance of immortality, not by eating, but by not eating, and came back to this earth and lived as a, an ordinary mortal or human. Now, um, Unger says this is not really a parallel to the Genesis story of the fall of man, although it has a certain sort of a contrasting uh, resemblance to it. Uh, in some books, you will find a picture of a so-called temptation field. It shows a kind of a spindly tree, and over against this, there's a snake kind of crawling around, and the woman over here on the other side. And this is supposed to be Eve and the serpent and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, Hallie's Bible Handbook makes a great deal of this. It really... Uh, let's say, capitalizes on this and represents this as a, a genuine parallel to the uh, Genesis chapter 3 story of the temptation of Eve and the fall of man. And uh, we should have brought the book with a picture of it. <clears throat> this is a seal which could be used to impress on clay and seal a clay tablet or something. And uh, Unger says, well, it has this sort of a surface resemblance, it isn't really the thing. You see, the basic idea in the, New Te in the Old Testament is um, a perfect pair of humans deliberately disobeying God through the seduction of Satan. And it just seems that stretching it a little bit to claim that this temptation seal really pictures the temptation of Eve. 
and he says we should not expect to find <clears throat> the idea of a perfect man and woman who fell in Babylonian literature. Gods who were themselves partly evil, who intrigued and fought and spited each other and snapped and injured each other, could not be thought of as creating a perfect man and a perfect woman. Certainly the, what the gods created could not be better than the gods themselves, you see. And any man formed out of the blood of such gods, or such a god, couldn't be anything else than evil from the beginning, so there's no room for a fault. It says there are some contrasts in this, however. Now, uh, there's this parallel also. Both of these concern the question of why humanity has to suffer and die. Death, of course, is universal. You don't need the Bible to prove that people die. Death is universal, and suffering is universal. Therefore, these are humanity-wide problems. Buddhism also starts from this. Uh, the problem of suffering and death. And um, lightly regarded a myth is early people's attempt to accomplish something that they can't explain. This is like the Japanese myth, the cosmology, cosmogony, or like this. Uh, early man's attempts to explain the unexplainable, either in nature or in human life. There's a thunderstorm. Well, they can't understand that. You know nothing about the physical causes of thunderstorm. So this is supposed to be the God's uh, bowling alley up there or something that, that you hear the, the noise of down here on the earth. And uh, so uh, a myth is an attempt to explain something that is otherwise baffling and mysterious. Now, certainly all humans have the inborn and built-in desire to live. This is part of our endowment when God created us. The thirst for life is the strongest of all human instincts. Self-preservation, thirst for life. This is the most powerful instinct that we have. And that's because God created us not to die but to live. Now sin has brought death and mortality over us. Uh, humanity suffers and dies. But you see, in spite of this, inborn thirst for life which we have and which we really can't to get rid of. Now, um, why is this? Everybody wants to live and yet everybody dies. This calls for an explanation. The Adapa story, says Younger, gives a false answer to this question, but it's an attempt to answer the question. And um, in the Bible, this is linked with a moral feature. Man sinned and therefore he must die. Adam sinned, and we have sinned, and therefore death overtakes us all. In the Adapa story, man must die because this man Adapa was deceived by one of the gods. And there's nothing about sin in the whole story. You know, President Coolidge, did I tell you about him, went to church? Did I tell you about Coolidge? And Mrs. Coolidge didn't go. She had a cold in the head and didn't go to church. And Coolidge came back. He was a man of few words. Came back to the White House this particular Lord's Day. Calvin, where you been? Church. What did you hear? Sin. What was it about? Sin. What did the minister say about? Opposed to it. Now, that's, that's Calvin Cooley. 
But there's nothing about sin in the Babylonian myth. This thing that orients the whole biblical story, sin and how to get saved from sin, is <coughs> not found in the Babylonian myth or literature. All right, I will see you first.